This is RDQI. Sports and human performance is something I really have no business talking about. So we brought in our very good friend and semi-professional athlete, Eileen, to give us her insight into this topic. If we look at records from the Olympic Games from 100 years ago, compared to today, we see some massive gains. What's driving this? Is it the fact that human beings are stronger, faster than they were 100 years ago? Or have advances in sports science allowed us to reach new heights of human potential? Stay tuned to find out. Lion's Specialty Coffee is sourced from a very specific area, in a very specific region, on a very specific continent. In fact, it is so secret that no one knows about it except for us. It is the best. When we get that coffee back here, we have our top employees process the coffee themselves. And after it is hand-washed and cleansed, it is some of the best coffee in the world. Come down to Ryan's Coffee Experience and experience coffee like no other. Dave, are humans better than they were 100 years ago? Well, I am not at all qualified to answer that question. But it just so happens that we have somebody here with us who is uh, much more qualified than probably either of us, right? So, Eileen, first of all, welcome to the RDQI podcast. Thank you. It's good to good have, you, have you, Eileen. With us. It's nice to be here. But uh, what do you think about that question? You know, as much as I would love to say yes, and we can end this podcast as the, the shortest one on record. All right. <laughs> Well, yep, that's about it, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, See, we're already setting you know, new records right now. That's how advanced we are. <laughs> yeah, look, the answer is clearly yes. <laughs> you know, the answer is it's complicated, right? Um, I think that a measure, specifically if we want to look at it, is human performance in athletics. And this is a topic that's extra interesting to me as a longtime athlete, as a college athlete, as a certified Olympics junkie. Um, and I think that it's excellent to look at the modern Olympic Games. They started in 1896, and it's an interesting time, specifically in American history, because it's right after the Industrial Revolution, and that's when people found themselves with more and more free time, right? You know, something, your job that took you, you know, all day, all night. Now, people themselves suddenly found that they actually had extra time, so they channeled it in different ways, you know, vacations and, and sports. So we found the modern Olympic Games. Um, and if you look at the times from the first Olympics and then look at them today, it's dramatically different. And even the world records in among themselves are dramatically different. So it makes you think, us as a race, we have to be getting better, right? But uh, I don't think it's that simple. Do you know, like ballpark, what I, I mean? I'm, you know, there's different metrics for different events in the Olympic Games, but not like I guess percentage increase ballpark. You know, are we talking tenths of seconds here and there? Or are we talking, you know, massive improvements? Well, it depends on the sport. I mean, the Olympics themselves are always uh, an event of the extremes. Mm -hmm. So, like for example, the shot put record—it's it was set in the I think in 1992. It hasn't been broken in that long because we just had uh, such an amazing athlete, and I, I don't know his name. It's yeah. to say the, the male shot put hasn't been broken in that long. Um, but if you look at something like the marathon, mm -hmm. um, the winner of the 
2012 marathon would have won by over an hour and 20 minutes from, I think, the 1904 <laughs> Olympics. Uh, wow. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's it's very, very fast. In fact, that time, it was, I think, a little over three hours and 20 minutes. And that's like a, I don't even think that'll get you in the Boston no. Marathon no, right no, now. No, no, Wow. Yeah. The, the winner of the 1904 Marathon would not qualify for the Boston Marathon today. Right, exactly. Wow. <laughs> And I think so that but I think you get to one kind of the first point of why this is possible is that our free time is like a, a species was much different, right? Like all of a sudden, A, we could turn the lights on at night, so the day didn't actually end ever, or it didn't have to. And then B, you know, you didn't necessarily you didn't necessarily have to work so much. So it's easier to train for a marathon when you have two or three hours a day that you can devote to it. But before the Industrial Revo- Revolution, that Using your time that way might not have been the wisest way to use your time, probably. Another point of that is that it opened it up to all types of classes of people. It wasn't just the elites who had family money, but it was everybody who had free time, which got more and more open as people's jobs got industrialized. I didn't even think about that until, you know, the that all of a sudden we had this, I never thought about that really holistically. Like what did people fill their time with when all of a sudden they had free time? (laughs) But yeah, it's a, it's a great example. So I feel like the data is, um, you know, maybe there's an increase in the ability to train, but if you're talking about an hour difference on a three hour, roughly, you know, that's, that, can't just be explained by more training, right? So the wouldn't right. the data point to humans being, I don't know, like more physically evolved than they were 100 years ago? Well, may, so yes, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, in the sense of, so like a popular thing in sports, especially in the 2010s, was the incremental or the increment of marginal gains, right? So if you gain 1% in all areas of your craft, you'll get better on the field. So let's say you're a cyclist, because this is where this all comes from, was from British cycling. So if you sleep better, 1% better at night, and then you have, you clean your hands more efficiently, so you get sick less often. And you do these little things, they'll build up to a much bigger hole, and you'll be a better athlete for it. And based on the guy who kind of led the way in this and led the the British to become a cycling powerhouse for a couple of decades seems to give it credence that if you have time to then not just train more, but also think about how to train more and how to train better, then you start to, it starts to become a compound interaction. It's not linear anymore. Maybe where it starts to shift into like this growing complexity around our idea of what even sport is. Does that make any sense? Yes, and I think that brings up a good point is one of the ways that we can look at, you know, are we better as a race or did we just get smarter with the way that we train? You know, Sir Roger Bannister, who was the first human to break four minutes in the mile, he used to drink rat poison. That was like his, I don't know, they thought that was the right thing to do. And now I don't even know if I can buy rat poison. (laughs) I'm afraid to Google it. Somebody will show up in my house, but it's... There's a ton of ways that we get smarter, you know, like Ryan, what you were saying, just mindfulness, right? I know that's that's something even super modern, um, but just the way, you know, there's hit training. I could I could go on a rant, but there's a lot of things that we do um, that we just they didn't do, you know, 100 years ago, 120 years ago when this started, where 
much more sophisticated all around about ways we can become more explosive. If you're a distance person, it doesn't mean you have to run or cycle or swim or, you know, all the different disciplines, you know, the the maximum amount that you race and then add some more to it. Um, You know, we're much more interested in diet, all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's certainly impacting the times because people in general are, I don't want to say healthier because there's a lot of arguments around that too. (laughs) Sure. But it's, it is set up for a, better you know maximum um punch when they're competing Hmm. so this is going to sound like a left-hand turn here but when we when this question was floated earlier um, when we were kind of talking about this episode i actually went and read up on the um you're gonna laugh at me dave read up on the eighth century abbasid empire <laughs> yep. Because of course you did. And here's why. It's because in the Abbasid Empire in Baghdad at the time, this is where algebra comes from. Right? So before 8th century Baghdad, algebra wasn't a thing. It wasn't a human concept yet. We had oh, I mean we, man, it's so sad to think about a life without algebra. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so Poor guys. I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible because it's not terribly important, but I think it speaks to a, a big point about thought patterns in humans is before this, before 8th century, we had arithmetic, right? 2 plus 2 was 4. And there were a number of ways to write it down. But until this 8th century, you didn't have this combined forces where you could use a letter in place of a number, and that letter could have a complex value, could have a value that's manipulated on and on and on. And so it opened up this whole new line of thinking about how to even think about what math is. And so this line of thinking called algebra comes out of it and it's weird to think about humanity before algebra existed because it's such a rudimentary skill set that we pretty much all learn at least in the american education system hopefully so it seems like just commonplace but before then the idea that a could equal x plus b did not it just wasn't relevant and what is fascinating about that is that after algebra comes through then what happens? You know, what comes out of it? And you look a couple centuries down the line, you think, oh, these Arabic ideas get back to Europe via a complex method of transmission. No time to get into that. And then we have the Enlightenment. So it's like, and we kind of talked about that, Dave, too, with coffee and the Enlightenment. It's about these compound ideas that build on each other and start to create this new dynamic way of thinking. And I think the Industrial Revolution, the way we're talking about Um, athletics and humanities endeavoring to find the way that we try and maximize human performance is is a direct symptom of the industrial revolution so it's this whole new way of thinking it's not just that we're we're thinking about being better athletes we're thinking about being better athletes in a whole new way and i think that's that's why i went to the abbasid empire because it was such an explosive idea that we just think is commonplace now you're talking about you're talking about a, a foundational pillar that was created, and then you know think about how much has been built off of algebra, mm-hmm. right? Right. But I, th- I mean, I I don't know, um, but it it sort of sounds like it, it's it's sort of a pull and not a push. Where we had the Olympics, we had you know finally something that. I, before then, what would have been the reason to try and understand how you can make human performance better, right? There's obviously health is, is a big thing, keeping people alive, improving quality of life, but running faster, I mean, mm. why would you need to know that until you had these 
very, very popular games where people were competing for these faster times. And all of a sudden that became something. And I could be completely speaking, uh, out of turn here. Cause I do not know. I'm just trying, I, this is an inference I'm, I'm, coming up with to say, oh, well, okay, we, we, all of a sudden there was a need for this, but then, you know, now today we have this unbelievably complex field of sports science, which I don't pretend to know much about, but I know you two, two both do quite Yeah, a bit. no, I think it's a good point because, you know, there's always been races and stuff, you know, throughout like time, you know, people love to compete some more than others, but the Olympics, I like that as a measurement because, modernly i mean it's it's a sign of your country's dominance right again sochi you know it was very well advertised that russia wanted to win as many gold medals as possible and in beijing in uh 2008 china had said that they won't they may not win the most medals overall but they'd win the most gold and even in the 1936 olympics which were in berlin and adolf hitler used it as propaganda for his nazi party um, that he wanted to bring the world stage to Germany. So it's it's a piece of a way for countries to try to showcase how great they are in their might and their world superpower. Sure. I mean, like hmm. the miracle on ice is something us Americans hold on to. You know, it was a, our victory over the Soviets, you know, on the, on the skating rink. So there's, there's a lot of glory at stake. Yes. Yeah, and it's a it, you know a showcase of of the people of that country, but also of the science of that country. You know, mm-hmm. the development of that country. Because behind every one of those athletes, as the Olympics became more and more competitive, are you know teams and teams of people. You know, you know every sort of every every kind of um, uh, expert, whether it's diets, whether it's um, aerodynamics, whether it's physical performance, blah blah blah. Right. Right. I think, you know, two things from that, Dave. One is um, Title IX, if you guys are familiar with that. That's, that was a ruling that they, a school has to spend the same amount on boys' sports as it does on girls' sports. Mm-hmm. And it was a big landmark victory, and it really propelled women's sports, especially because American football is a very expensive sport. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's put, they have to put a lot of money into women's athletics. Yeah. So as a result of that, American women just dominate the Olympics, specifically the summer games huh. yeah. Yeah. And, and the World Cup. I mean, our soccer team, I think we've won three World Cups in a row. And that's an echo effect, I'll call it, from Title IX. Now, other countries are starting to catch up, um, but it's, it's definitely something that's really showing, as an American woman, I'm very excited about the power of American women. Um, But I think that you started to touch on another piece, which was technology. So specifically, I'm thinking of in swimming, there was a suit that's called the laser. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole series and there's, you know, there's a lot of them. Um, But one thing, um, they, they actually had to disqualify it from being used in the Olympics because it's an expensive suit. Speedo made it. Mm -hmm. And they were having countries like United States, like the UK, the more wealthy countries could afford it. Um, and then the less wealthy countries couldn't. And they actually proved that that suit was inhibiting, or sorry, it was adding um, an advantage to those who wore it. And that's yeah. not the spirit of the Olympic Games. So they, uh, they right. outlawed it. Yeah, 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 I remember that was, you know, so my background, I'm sure the listeners know this already, because I think I mentioned it was swimming and water polo was my sports. And yeah, the, I remember 
Um, I think it was 2010 when it was when the when FINA, which is the equivalent of like FIFA for aquatics, um, when FINA outlawed the specifically the certain type of suit, um, because basically it was this very high tech composite material that added buoyancy um, was super, let's say, aerodynamic or hydrodynamic, um, and was you know. I think about a thousand dollars a suit, something like that. I mean, pretty expensive for just a swimsuit, and it certainly had some performance gains. I never wore one, so I couldn't tell you firsthand if what it was like. But I mean, I, I definitely know as a swimmer, you do everything you can to shave off time, um, shave your body as a guy, like head to toe, shave or wax um, to minimize drag, things like that. So it doesn't surprise me that people would go to the nth degree to find that extra tenth of a second of performance. And Dave, you and I talk. Well, I belabor you all the time with my obsession with Formula One, which is <laughs> all about there. <laughs> technology and how you can shave off hundreds of seconds are valuable in F one. You know, so as soon as you said that, Eileen, like I guarantee you, he's bringing F one. It's got to come up, but F one <laughs> is different because it's not about it's not an athlete. I mean, don't get me wrong; those drivers are highly athletic individuals, but I wouldn't call them athletes. You know, they're drivers. And mm-hmm. when it comes to human performance, right, the, the performance of someone on a field where their body is the primary mechanism for that, that's what we're really talking about. And so I, I found it interesting, Eileen, that you mentioned the shot put record for men hasn't been broken since the 90s. Do you think any of that is because there's really, as far as I can tell, not much new technology available to a shot putter? I mean, it's not like they're changing the shot put ball or anything. True. You know, and that's, that's admittedly, I threw shot put when I in the the Junior Olympics in 1993, so everybody be impressed because it really <laughs> matters. Um, but admittedly, it's not a sport I know inside and out. Um, but I imagine that you know another thing that we'll get to next: the body specialization is something that'll play a factor in in probably the training that we talked about, the diet. But technology, I mean, you, you can wear probably something a little more aerodynamic, but it it maybe the shoes that you have are maybe carbon fiber. Anybody mm. who actually throws shot put is probably squirming in their chair. <laughs> but um, you're right. Something very simple, right? Like like a lot of the field events, you know, long jump, high jump, javelin, um, as far as just apparel, you know, something as significant as the suits that you wear when you swim, it's it's not going to play as big of a factor. I mean, the other thing, too, that I wanted to mention, um, as far as apparel that's been controversial, especially recently, has been the Nike Vaporflies, which are the, the shoes um, that I that are outlawed now. I mean, again, it's a whole series, so there's some specific that are outlawed, um, but it's been very controversial on if that shoe is actually aiding the marathon runners into actually breaking records. Cause I think it brings up this other kind of like aspect that is appearing in sports now, like with the laser where it's like, okay, so we all agree that, you know, this is something that is helping uh, swimmers or helping athletes, but you know, what can the human body do? Like if you stack the deck, if you give them all these things, if you give them this nice technology, how fast can they go? Um, you know, right. recently Caleb Dressel, 
who, if if you don't know who he is, the next Olympics, I'm sure he's he's like the premier American sprinter in swimming that's going to you know be on everybody's minds, and then everyone's going to forget about him, and maybe yep. four years later yep. they'll think about him again because that's how the sport goes. Um, he had a challenge where they wanted to see if he could break 20 seconds in the 50 meter, and that's something that's never been done, but they were. You know, he wore, you know, one of the outlawed suits and he, he, he spoiler, he didn't do it, um, but it was a challenge and he got two tries. And then uh, similar with the marathon, uh, you know, to be a world record, you have to, there's a whole th- series of things you have to do to actually qualify for Guinness world record. Um, but the runner wore the vapor flies. It, it was not actually something that was um, sanctioned. But it was on a flat course um, in Europe. I think it was in Aust- or Switzerland. It was loops. There was drafting, right? And um, and it was done in under two hours, which is incredible. But it was just shown that okay, can can the human body actually do this? And and yeah, it can. It's pretty exciting. So I I, I want to dig into this because you know any sport is essentially a physical body operating in the physical world and you're using physics to understand, you know, so when I was a little kid, I used to love riding my bike. And at one point, one of my friends told me it was, we were racing and I I could never beat him. And he goes, you know, what you should do is you should, instead of pressing down with like the middle of your foot, you should press down with the, you know, the balls of your feet or your, uh, the toes. And that will give you more, um, you'll have more leverage to push the pedals down and go faster. And then all of a sudden I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like mm-hmm. I'm winning this race. All right. <laughs> and that was, uh, when I was nine years old and that's like my, the highest sports prowess I ever achieved. So thank you. Um, <laughs> but that's obviously a very, very simplistic, you know, when you look at the mechanics of that, you can kind of understand why. So multiply that, you know, tiny little scientific discovery by teams of sports scientists looking at how things are. So, you know, think the, the shot put is, is aerodynamics and the physics of, you know, how you, how you generate the pressure or the momentum to throw the ball as far as you can. Whereas something like swimming, there's a lot more variables involved in that. Cause you're talking about aquatics and aerodynamics within the water or hydrodynamics. Um, how has that science kind of helped sports develop or helped optimize performance in sports. And I, I kind of want to talk about, cause I'm really interested to hear it quite honestly, the whole idea of body composition and specialization. Right. Cause you're, you're talking about the fact that at this, in our contemporary times, any ma- elite athlete is really, there's a team of people behind them helping them orchestrate their performance. Right. It's kind of what you're saying. Well, it's, it's that, well, so Eileen, you were bringing up a really great point before we started where, you know, in the, in the Olympics a hundred years ago, there was like one body type and now there's not. And I'd love right. for you to like kind of talk about that. <laughs> right. The old way of thinking was that if you're about five foot 10, maybe 170, 80 pounds, that was the ideal athlete. And this, and that's speaking from the male spectrum, um, and that person could was the best at anything. 
and now you see a lot more of what we'll call body type specialization. We know more that it's better for gymnasts to be short um, and power packed because they can, you know, spin faster. They can jump higher. Um, you know, basketball players typically are, are tall. Um, they're very tall. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the stat is if you're seven feet tall or taller, that there's a one in 10 chance you're in the NBA right now in America. Really? <laughs> yeah. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, and we're, we're seeing a lot of variability. I mean, if you look more at American football, you know, like we were talking about before, you know, running backs are starting to get to be a little bit shorter, um, but they're getting to be bigger and bigger in mass. So they're just like a freight train, you know, running through. Um, we've gotten to be a lot smarter about the types, the body types that we need that will excel in different sports. I'm, I know, obviously, this is an audio, you can't see me. I'm five foot 10. Um, I get asked a lot if I play basketball. <laughs> sure. Or volleyball um, or something like that. Volleyball. Some right. other heteronormative sport. Yeah. Right. Things where, where height is important. Um, I have a brother who is just, you know, looks like a gorilla. I mean, he just looks like a football player, you know, a typical American football player. So it's kind of just built into our expectations is that people of certain body types now do certain sports are going to naturally be good at certain sports just by their genetics. Um, and that's a newer understanding that we didn't have, you know, a hundred plus years ago when this all started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, this is something that continues to evolve. Um, you know, someone like Usain Bolt, he's six foot five. And if he were born in any country other than Jamaica, he would not have been put into sprinting. I mean, in, in the U.S., he probably would have been you know, put into basketball. You know, football players, wide receivers are now getting taller and taller. Mm-hmm. But because of where he was born and just the popularity of sprinting, that's what he was pursuing and he's done very very well and now there's some you know some news that parents who have you know seen their child who is very very tall that they're not ruling out something like sprinting as a sport that they could naturally excel at yeah i mean i can kind of add a little bit like a layer to that so i'm i'm 5'10 as well and i'm a water polo player which is kind of like basketball in terms of height is dominant but it's a different kind of height because you're in water and so I actually play taller because my wingspan is like six foot three even though I'm five ten and I'm, my brother's theory is that my arms stretched out because I've been swimming since I was five and then my arms have just <laughs> elongated with time which that's how it works right scientifically sure. sound to me <laughs> hey who knows um I mean maybe a half inch of it is that who knows but so i was able to play like a bigger player than i actually was in some facets of the game and which made me a better player until i got to like the college level and quickly realized like oh i'm i'm basically the practice dummy now like that's because that's my my (laughs) physical my anatomical composition so you know i very quickly realized like oh this is not like high school is the peak for me i'm not moving on past this point and it was mostly tied to anatomy See, this is this is where okay. So unlike Ryan and Eileen, I am uh, I'm in no way, shape, or form an athlete, <laughs> but I'm a mathlete, not an athlete. <laughs> I um, there there's part of that that kind of seems a little bit um, 
I don't know, unfair or elitist about professional sports because if you're just not born with a certain very specialized range of body composition, you're just, you're out, right? Like if you're under seven foot, you're never going to play professional basketball. Um, and uh, there's this really, I know Ryan, you and I have talked about this before. Eileen, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but I remember watching tennis from tennis is the only sport that I really ever got into. And I remember watching the Olympic footage from the sixties and seventies and I'll watch tennis today, but it's not really that entertaining because to me, it seems very robotic. At least I kind of know what's going on, but I don't watch a lot of professional sports because to me, it, it doesn't, it's not really exciting because it's too exact, you know, and if you play and you really understand the sport, you can enjoy it. But if you don't, it's not really all that entertaining, but I loved watching tennis from the sixties and seventies because it's real people who are pretty good at playing tennis, playing tennis, you know, but they're not making mistakes. Like, or, or sorry, they, they are making mistakes in the sixties and seventies and, you know, modern tennis today is, Oh, you know, you swing the racket half a second late and that loses you the match. Like it'll bu- kill you yeah. from the fast ball. That's- coming your way <laughs> well billiards perfect example of a sport that is just you billiards is who makes the mistake first who hits one shot that doesn't put a ball in the hole and then you lose the game but, but like that's the most boring thing in the world to watch <laughs> unless you and, really love and, billiards and then it's fascinating. Well, right <laughs> and frankly to play because how 90 99% of just amateurs would play the sport of basketball is not at all how professionals play the sport of basketball, right? Professionals are looking to carve out that half a second or they're looking to get an inch taller. They're looking like the game is so precise now. Every aspect has been studied. Yes, there's obviously still so much more to go, but it's, I don't know. It, it to me, it sort of takes the, the fun and the spirit of of performance away. Eileen's just laughing at me. Yeah, no, I, I mean, just, I, I, so I'm not in the yeah. room, but Dave, it honestly feels like you're saying I don't like elite athletes because they're just really good at what they do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because the better you get, the smaller the margin of error is, and you're saying that you wish the margin of error was bigger. Right? Am, uh, I, am I mistranslating I mean, you here? I, I guess I would I would add on to that to say that you know the world's best amateur tennis player would never ever compare to Roger Federer who has you know teams and millions of dollars behind him right um, I don't know it I, I feel like the the it's less about the spirit of sport and the spirit of competition and it's more about I don't know, something that's not that. <laughs> oh, okay, I got you. No, understand. I mean, going back to the body type thing, I mean, certainly there's areas where you have an advantage, right? I mean, I'm never going to be a good gymnast, and I it's a, just something I have to live with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the sport, but I was 5'2 when I was, I think, 8, so it just was not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, any given Sunday, right? Any The will and, like, the excitement, you know, there's tons of movies and everybody can name, you know, an athlete like Muggsy Bogues, who, you know, is very short and was in the NBA. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't automatically disqualify you, but of course it, it makes it a lot easier if you're born with a certain way that fits the advantage, you know, of a, of a sport. 
like swimmers, it makes it easier if you have a very long torso because you're more like a boat, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not how my proportions are. I have longer legs, so you just have to figure out a way to compensate that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I do understand your your point dave <laughs> about um and i'm just playing devil's advocate like i <laughs> i wasn't going to be good at sports regardless so i you know does it 100 years ago or now it's the same thing <laughs> i do i do understand it does take i think a high understanding of a of a sport um to be able to appreciate or really enjoy you know all the meticulousness of it but you know i've been to a couple olympic games and you know, try to try to go to as many as I can. Honestly, um, would have loved to go to Tokyo, but obviously, oh yeah, that's it right, didn't, didn't happen. And also, I was like eight months pregnant with twins, so that's a whole other, <laughs> <laughs> that also would have but. impacted me. But um, you know, the when I, I went to the London was the last Olympics I've been to, and I just got as many tickets as I can. It's just amazing to see levels of greatness in sports that aren't very popular in the United States. I mean, mm-hmm. for example, table tennis. I mean, and badminton. I cannot believe how fast <laughs> the ball and the birdie go. I mean, it, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And that's, you know, very common in a lot of uh, countries in Asia. That's their very popular sport. But for us, um, I don't know. I just sometimes just, I think, being around that level of greatness is just inspiring in and of itself. And that's why I personally like watching some of those areas. And then my natural competitiveness, I'm like, ooh, can I do that? <laughs> but, you know, the answer's no. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a really good point because, you know, I, I think there's, first of all, a huge difference between watching sports on TV and seeing them, seeing these people in real life. Definitely. Um, and it is really inspiring to see what human beings are capable of. You know, and yeah, not everybody's, you know, that's 0.0001% of, you know, people on the planet who can come close to this, but it is still just, it's astounding and it makes you think differently about what am I going to do when I go home? Am I going to really sit down and watch Netflix for like four hours or am I going to, you know, get on, (laughs) get outside and go run? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's certainly worth celebrating the pinnacle of human achievement, especially in such like a a uniting way you know it's like dave i've said this to you multiple times i think sport is the best replacement for war in in civilization right like you know from chicago if i see a packers fan there's just kind of like this little weird hatred that bubbles up for some weird reason (laughs) (laughs) but that 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 hatred that um, tribal battle gets taken care of in a very civil way if you can call american football a civil and peaceful union and it, it like transfers the desire maybe for dominance over another people to like, let's just choose to do it on this field where we play by the same rules. And that's much better than, well, we're just going to show up at your town and burn it down. Now, obviously, that's a huge extrapolation and way too far. But I, I've always thought that sports replaces our desire for combat, desire to see who is better. So I, I think, Ryan, that that is a whole different podcast. I'd love to explore like, you know, 
what the natural human instinct is for war and can it be replaced by like a fake war essentially in, in the form of sports competition. Um, but let me ask you to this. So I think the, the theory that we're sort of getting at is human beings themselves are not necessarily stronger or faster than they were a hundred years ago. It's more the science that's sort of, you know, building up and expanding on human potential. But do you think there's any legitimacy to the idea that maybe over the course of a hundred years, there's some sort of evolutionary something that has caused human beings to actually just naturally have faster times, stronger, farther throws. <laughs> hey, you almost said the Olympic model is uh, faster times, stronger throws, <laughs> <Yeah>. better bros. <laughs> I think uh, I went to a frat party once where they were selling that on a t-shirt. Um, that might have been the best off the cuff joke I've ever come up with. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done podcasting, Rye. We're done. Let's end on oh, that I didn't note. know it end like this. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. Um, anyway, what do you think? <laughs> I so you said evolutionarily, right? Yeah, and I don't know if there's any other way to think about it well okay you know what brings this question up is i was at a um shoot now i can't remember the name of the exhibit it was uh, an exhibit at the art institute and they had a number of um like old suits that were worn by some of these famous artists that were hanging up and they were by all proportions smaller like not just shorter but wow, I don't know anyone who could fit into that. Maybe it's like a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, but like human beings are just bigger than that. Like take every square inch of your body and just expand it out by several inches. And I remember thinking, huh, I wonder if, have human beings gotten bigger? Have they gotten taller? Like, is it just happens to be this sample size that we're really small? I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs>